Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces, and today I'm with Stephanie Carvin and friends. And it's a bit echoey because we're actually in the hallowed halls of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, where we've all, all assembled for a conference. So we're not all mic'd up, but hopefully this will uh, sound all right. Uh, and today we're future casting. In anticipation of Bill C-59 actually becoming law, and we'll have an update on that, we're contemplating what national security law and policy priorities a government after the fall election might reasonably have. And so we've assembled here many of the founding editors of our new blog project, and they'll introduce themselves as we begin this conversation. But to get us underway, Stephanie, perhaps a, a few uh, little updates. So logistically, uh, we're going to take a bit of a break after this podcast. We'll be back in June because we're doing some traveling. And so this will be our last podcast for May. And we hope at that point in June and July to have a few more guests before breaking for uh, our summer break and then starting our third season. So to begin with, let, let's just talk a little bit about where C-59 is. So it, it is now through clause by clause, and that means the Senate committee has looked at the act, uh, has made a few amendments that uh, neither you nor I uh, nor anybody think are all that important, but they are amendments. Uh, it's off then to the Senate for third reading. Not entirely sure when that third reading will take place. I think it's supposed to be May 30th. That's it's supposed to be done by May 30th, my understanding is. And so presumably the debate on third reading will come before May 30th, at which point if there are still amendments that have uh, wended their way through third reading, it has to go back to the Commons for uh, the Commons consultation. Uh, so there's still a little bit of runway left on C-59, but things uh, certainly look more promising. So why don't we bring our assembled alumni of intrepid and founding editors of our blog uh, into this conversation. And Michael Nesbitt, why don't we start with you. Looking forward, if you were to be advising whatever government is in power after the October election on areas of priority in national security law and policy, what would your top three issues be? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with low-hanging fruit on the first one because I think there's a relatively uncontroversial bill, and I'm forgetting the name now, winding its way through, which will not make it through before the House rises for the summer and then the election, but that's with respect to CBSA and actually having some uh, civilian oversight moved from, from, well, redoing what's done with the RCMP and moving it over to the CBSA. So I think that's probably one that certainly if the Liberals win again, one would presume they would reintroduce that bill, but I think it's probably fairly uncontroversial, so that would be one guess. A second guess, and maybe this is less a guess and a hope, but I, I think it's been, it's been 18 coming on 19 years since we've redone our criminal code after short, very in quick order after 2001. And I think we finally started to see a mass of prosecutions in the area of terrorism. And it might be worth looking at it. I'm not saying there's going to be legislation coming forward, but it might be worth looking at some of that legislation. It looks to me on an initial oversight of some of the cases, like we've had um, a lot of overlap between some of the various provisions. Some of the various provisions have not ever been used, and I'm sure Jess Davis will get to some of the financing, perhaps. So that, that might be something to look at. And, and I, think, I think that's probably it in terms of my future casting. Yeah, and that cleanup, it's worth noting the BC Court of Appeal in the Nuttall case emphatically said, anti-terrorism criminal law probably needs a 
re- refresh. It's it's complicated and convoluted. Yeah, I think they went they went further than that and said it was almost impossible to read, and that's coming from a court of appeal. And so you can imagine jury trials happening and and the, the problem for lawyers and for jurors and trying to figure something out. And and frankly, I spent two years going through just the facilitation of participation cases, trying to figure out what the heck the difference is between the two of them. And, and I probably it's fair to say I still can't really tell you in detail how it is we distinguish. So I, I think part of the purpose of this podcast is just literally Craig explaining things to me in, in my new detail. <laughs> okay, why don't I turn to you, Leah, Leah West. Uh, what would be on your list? So I have uh, two things. The first is dealing with the Canadian foreign fighters who are uh, currently abroad. Um, There needs to be something done, whether it's policy moves or criminal prosecutions, there needs to be something done about these Canadians that are abroad. And I think it's not going to be just a Canada issue, it's going to be a broader coalition of countries who are like-minded, who have Canadians and other citizens who are abroad, are going to need to come together to to solve this problem. Because leaving them in the hands of, of the Kurds is not sustainable, especially as the government of Syria reasserts control over areas of Syria. We know that Syria has a history of, of torture. So I think we need to, to develop a, a really strong strategy to deal with that, and it's not going to be a Canadian-only solution. The second thing I would say, and I'll get on my soapbox again, is that um, Canada needs to start explaining itself on how it views uh, law applying to cyberspace. We've had uh, speeches from the Minister of Public Safety talk about the importance of cyber and cybersecurity and strong cyber defenses and um, defense against foreign influence in cyberspace, and that's great, and we do. But if we're going to put those tools in place that C-59 is going to give our agencies, the government needs to enunciate how it interprets international law and cyber norms in cyberspace um, so that we really understand what our, our government's uh, approach is in this in this context. Because as Craig knows and anybody who knows anything about international law, international law is developed through actions and state statements about what the state of the law and until we actually get statements about how Canada interprets the state of international law, we're going to be leaving it up to other countries to set the tone. Great. Uh, Jess Davis? Yeah, so I definitely agree with Leah about the foreign fighter issue. Um, You know, this is a really slow burn humanitarian problem, but it's also a residual threat problem. Like these people who are in um, Kurdish custody right now, they still pose a potential threat to the security of Canada, but an international threat as well. Um, The government, whatever government it is, needs to figure out a policy about bringing them home. I think leaving them overseas is a much more problematic from a threat perspective. You know, there's a possibility of being released, of being reintegrated into ISIS forces. All of those things just make it worse. Bringing them home, of course, has its own challenges in the sense of like, can we prosecute? Probably not. In most cases, it seems like, which then leads to the other problem in terms of addressing whether or not the RCMP and other investigative agencies have the tools that they need to address these kinds of threats. And that also relates to my second point, which is um, you know, the illicit financing piece in Canada writ large. The money laundering scandal that's happening in BC right now is exceptionally eye-opening about the lack of capability that Canada has to address the threat. Money laundering should be the bread and butter of financial criminal investigations. And the fact that this has gone on for as long as it has, we still don't know the scope and scale of money laundering in BC and how it's been taking place. That, to me, signifies some really institutional problems. They may be criminal code related, but I think that the the problems are probably going to be much broader in terms of the institutions that deal with them, the policies, the personalities. 
So there's a huge piece of work around that in terms of dealing with you know, illicit financing in Canada generally, so definitely money laundering, and then also correspondingly terrorist financing. If you cannot get a handle on the scope of money laundering in Canada, there's almost no chance you're going to get a handle on any of the more complicated um, financial crimes that may involve much more sophisticated non-state actors, state actors in some cases, you know, sanctions evasion, all of these things can be, are even more complicated than most money laundering cases. So if, if we're falling on that, we're not doing anything on the other things. Great. Stephanie? Oh, I have so many opinions, Craig. <laughs> you know that. Basically, I was going to say the, the point about uh, norms and foreign fighters, so now I have to come up with some things on the fly. This is great. Uh, no pressure. I really, okay, so I'm going to say reviews, right? We're setting up this whole new review apparatus in C-59, but right at the cusp of the election. So the next government, whoever it is, needs to make sure that these review bodies get going or else we're actually in a worse place than we were prior to C-59. Um, so basically they have to make sure that these agencies are properly staffed, that they're funded, that basically they can get up and running quickly because that's what we really need from our from our review bodies. And I mean, Jess always makes a point online that I agree with too, is like we don't perform reviews after major terrorism or national security failures or successes. So we never learn from these things. So making sure that the review bodies, and, and actually I should include in that the NSI cop or NICE cop, as we've learned to pronounce it. NC cop. I don't, oh, I don't like that one as much. I refuse um, to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nisey Cop. Um, <laughs> they need to continue their work as well because they're one of the few bodies that has the, the ability to kind of do these things. And uh, I, I think they've proven themselves to have been a, a worthwhile initiative. The second thing is we've all been talking about ideas. The fact is we should be doing all of this. And it would be a lot easier if we didn't update our laws every 10 years. And this is a point that you've made, Craig, and I'm going to steal, frankly. So sorry about the plagiarism. Mm -hmm. But it's, consider this the attribution, but the fact is we have to start regularly updating our laws and policies and practices. We can't just wait for a major crisis. We can't wait for some kind of failure. We can't wait for something to happen and then do it because then we do it in a rushed way and it's bad. So we need to get more. So, so one of the things I'm saying is not necessarily specific law, but just the way we actually develop the laws and policies themselves. We need to do it with a lot more regularity. And finally, and this is something I said a lot two years ago when Bill C-59 originally came out, which feels like maybe five decades ago, but that's fine. But that is public safety itself. I think public safety is um, too big. We were talking a bit about this yesterday. The, you know, there's, there's a trade-off here. So the Department of Public Safety. The Department of Public Safety is, is such a big animal. I mean, if you think of all the things that it's in charge of, so like all the kind of agencies, RCMP is just massive in and of itself. And then you tack on CBSA, uh, CSIS, uh, the parole board, and uh, correctional services. It's crazy. And then on top of that, they also have the mandate for cyber. They also have a mandate for proliferation files. They also have a role for countering violent extremism in Canada, right? The Canada Center. Um, and they have a coordination role of all of the national security policy generally. And then on top of that, you tack on emergency management. I mean, it's, it, you know, so when we have forest fires, when we have floods, all these kinds of things. I mean, Ralph Goodell has the man slept in four years. So all that to say, I think, you know, we need to rethink. And the trade-off, of course, is that when you have these kind of reshuffles, it takes a long time for everyone to figure out who's who and who has what role. And, and I get that. But, you know, uh, we're already doing it with our review bodies. So, so I think it can be done. The other thing is that, as you pointed out, global affairs, just global affairs has three ministers. 
right? Could we not have a similar structure at public safety? I mean, they have Bill Blair there who's kind of doing something on borders and handguns, but no one's really kind of sure where he fits in structurally. So I think if you had a better structure, maybe a hierarchical structure, kind of like global affairs, where you have the minister of public safety, but then you have a minister of emergency management and a minister of maybe national security issues or something, or policing issues, and then maybe the, the, the lead minister is the national security guy. That's the way I would restructure public safety. But, you know, this is just something I just scream about randomly on Twitter. <laughs> Great, so... How about you, Craig? Well, uh, let me guess. Okay, uh, right. can, wait, can, wait, can the table guess what Craig is going to say? Intelligence to evidence. evidence. Really? Yeah. Okay. Right, so that would definitely, Everybody drink. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't actually get enough... We didn't get any tea or anything for the purposes of this podcast. But uh, yes, intelligence to evidence, right? So this perennial dilemma that we've talked on a sponsoring member of this podcast that we've talked about and, and, and regularly throughout the last two years... There is movement, right? And so there's some creative thinking going on. That continuity, continuing that creative thinking, uh, thinking outside the box. Uh, we're here at this conference today, which is uh, on terrorism investigations, and we're hearing repeatedly, in uh, an amplified manner, a uh, validating manner, in fact, that the, the intelligence to evidence problem is a very serious, not just legal problem, but public safety problem. Uh, and so really getting a, a grip with that complicated issue Treating it as something for which there is no silver bullet, but there is progress that can be made in incremental steps, I think is really, really important. And I would say, I would add, just to add sort of a risk aspect to this conversation about what might be done, in the event that there is either a new government or a new minister, or both, you're talking about now taking a very complicated issue with a new person at the top and saying, this is something that we have to solve. It's it doesn't necessarily, it's not something the public will necessarily understand, but it's very, very important. The risk, of course, is that it will get buried in terms of priorities. And national security itself gets buried often in the priorities of any government. So um, that's one concern I have, although I think it's very important. The other, the other, and it's also an investigative issue, and I think it's even harder, frankly, is the encryption. Going dark, lawful access conundrum, which we have not solved, uh, and I don't think any jurisdiction has adequately solved it. Uh, Lee and I, one of the things we have to do this summer is we have to write a, an article for a comparative a law journal on, on what Canada might do in this space and w what it has done in, in relation to encryption. So far it's going to be short. So far it's <laughs> going to be very short. I, I think there is... Is it just going to be the shrug emoji? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, so, so we'll, we, I think there, there are probably some areas where you can make progress. So, for example, I think data at rest is, is different than data in motion in terms of the implications of say, a backdoor requirement. This is the kind and of by data at rest and data in motion, this is my job where I have to explain things. Right. Data at rest is like the stuff that's like sitting on your phone, right. which is there because, you know, I took a bunch of selfies last night and it's there. Whereas data in motion is me sending a message to you. So right. kind of intercepting it in, in the midst right. of, of so that. So if I have a lawful access regime that, that would give me privileged access through a backdoor or something else, but I have to have in my possession the device, Yes, that's very different in terms of the potential prejudicial consequences of of hacking or invasive uh, tools used by an, an adversary than some sort of backdoor access to a communications app. I, I'm not saying it's going to be an easy solution, but I think we need to think outside the box. And there's a process that has to go into this. We can't have, surprise, lawful access laws tabled in Parliament, which has sort of been the pattern in the past, because that will animate a fierce resistance. 
I think it has to so you're with the terrorists. Right, yeah. So I think there needs to be a, a careful policy-making deliberative process that involves the equivalent of that green paper we saw last time around uh, that allows people to think outside the box and perhaps understand the dilemmas that are in play. Michael, you wanted to get in on this. Yeah, I, I just think that really ties together a number of our proposals. And so when I say we should have another look at our terrorism regime, of course, I'm referring to part 2.1 of the criminal code, which has our terrorism offenses. But there's much broader than that. The problems that we've seen in terrorism prosecution and the problems I'm worried about going forward, to go to Leah's point about uh, individuals who are returning, is in some ways similar to the problems that Jess was talking about with respect to money laundering. And so some of this relates to lawful access. How do you, What do you do with the, the most basic level, a text message that's been sent from one party to a third party. And we've seen some recent, perhaps we should have some blogs on this, but we've, we've had some recent Supreme Court jurisprudence yeah, the on The Mills this. case. Yeah, yeah, the Mills case, exactly. And in the last couple of years, the Morocco case and the Jones case and the building. And the Supreme Court is clearly struggling with this, I think it's safe to say. I mean, when you have at least four, was it four different uh, separate opinions written in the in the Mills case. And I under in a way, I'm sympathetic to them because, of course, they're of course they're struggling with this. They're dealing with an antiquated regime and a new technology and Sir, trying to combine those two. Sorry, can you just for our audience explain what the Mills regime is? Sure, well the Mills case was a recent Supreme Court case and it dealt with it, what happens, Craig, you can correct me on the details or Leah, but it dealt with an individual who is sending text messages to, in this case, an undercover officer. And it's, so the question yeah, is whether you, need, whether you need a, a warrant ahead of time to essentially intercept, right, to it, be able to make use of the messages that, as an undercover officer, you have received from this third party. Right. And I think the other thing that really ties a lot of this together is, uh, you know, Stephanie, is, Stephanie was talking about the reviews. And I think part of the issue in Canada is because we don't have systematic reviews after terrorist incidents or after any sort of national security incident, really. We're not getting the evidence out in the public space to support a lot of these changes that we're all proposing or the constant review of our refreshing of our national security laws. The UK does this so well. It's not necessarily about assigning blame. It is absolutely about identifying things that went wrong, that went well, that could have gone better. But it also is about identifying the evolving threat environment and adapting, you know, Canadian society to that the, that adopt, that changing threat, and without doing those kinds of reviews, we're not making those kinds of changes that we need to. One thing I'll add as well that kind of ties into both the money laundering and, and cyber issues, especially in terms of cyber crime, um, this requires a capacity, um, and it requires institutional knowledge and the development of skills that is really hard for our RCMP, um, given its wide jurisdiction, it's multiple types of jurisdiction, it's jurisdiction over national security and national investigations, but also being regional police forces. And we've heard from the RCMP talking about how they are stretched to the limits. And um, we need to have a modern police force who understands basics of investigating cybercrime. Like we, we need to train them to understand how to follow the money in on, because these are the crimes that are affecting Canada. With $300 million, it was what the public safety minister said. It's the crime that's most affecting Canadians and we have a police force that's not trained to investigate it. So this isn't necessarily a national security matter per se, but we need to think about how the capacities of our, of our national police force 
And I think that that's, it's a big question, but if we're actually going to tackle some of these crimes that are actually impacting Canadians on a day-to-day basis, there needs to be some serious thought about retraining and retooling our everyday police officers. And the RCMP has made that really interesting announcement recently mm-hmm. about having those civilian investigators, which I think is an incredibly brave thing mm-hmm. to do. It's obviously going to get a lot of pushback culturally within the RCMP, but it also allows them to specialize. So done properly, this will allow RCMP investigators to actually develop the skills required to active work properly in the cyber or financial Mm -hmm. space. These are very specialized investigative Mm -hmm. spaces that you need a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. It also will allow them to attract individuals mid-career from maybe very lucrative but less fulfilling careers. Mm -hmm. So I'm really hopeful that the RCMP continues with this proposal, develops it more, really implements it properly. But I think there are also other structural issues within laws and frameworks and how agencies work together in Canada that you know, are the kinds of things that can be identified mostly through these postmortem reviews, yeah. and we're not doing it. The only thing I'll follow up on on that is that I hesitate about just making these types of things specialties because if if an average Canadian is affected by some sort of cyber scheme or they lose their data or there's a small business that's been hacked or whatnot and they're in a rural area, they're going to their local cop shop or police officer. And if those officers have no capacity whatsoever to assist that individual, given the priorities, right, the limited resources you have when you have a centralized team, those kinds of, of uh, criminal complaints are going to fall by the wayside. And I think I think we need to understand that cybercrime is a not just a a complex, complicated matter all the time, but sometimes it's just going to be have to treated like. A regular theft, and we need to get our law enforcement thinking and having the capacity to investigate it just like they would a theft, which is a hard thing to do. But given where our society is going and our, our continued reliance and growth on um, on the internet and cyberspace for all aspects of life, we need a modern police force. Just just to pick up on some of those thoughts, and, and especially Jess, your comment about about what the UK does in this space, in terms of not just knowing where the puck is, but anticipating where the puck might be in the future and doing this review process. So I, I just had a, an opportunity to peer review a, a, a book, hopefully a forthcoming book, on the experience with national security, especially anti-terrorism, review in the UK, and it's very eye-opening. And it, it affirms some of the sense I've had over the years watching the independent reviewer of anti-terrorism law uh, and, and the work of that office. Uh, so there are a couple of virtues, and, and, and we still haven't accomplished those virtues in Canada. So first, there's the lessons learned culture. Uh, which is more, first of all, frequent in the UK and frankly more public when it does happen in the UK. Uh, Secondly, the the virtue of the independent reviewer is that that person has credibility across the aisle, if you will, right? Both with the security services, they get to see the classified information, they see the full picture, and also because they're independent, they have have civil society, not not necessarily a happy civil society, but credibility with civil society if it's the right person. That sets the baseline for a lot of conversations about national security law and policy mm-hmm. that mean makes for a much more sophisticated conversation than what we see in Canada, where there's a lot of, frankly, misinformation that sometimes is in the flow. And there's not really an authoritative source who's sufficiently distant from the government to say, well, this is really what the issue is. And so a key illustration of how debates can be sidelined uh, is Bill C-51 in 2015, which, as you know, I objected to. But the range of objections range from sort of the technical objections that people like Kent Roach and I were making through to, well, frankly, more extreme objections that were not necessarily closely tied to the actual substance of the bill, right? And so there wasn't a baseline understanding of what that bill did. 
Uh, and so I look at the statute book and all the things that need fixing. So for example, in the CSIS Act, we still have this problem with CSIS as foreign intelligence capacity and its extraterritorial reach in the wake of that federal court case that we talked about, Stephanie, what, several months ago now. We have- Bob? It was a Bob from Mordor case, yes. The original. The original Bob from Mordor. Uh, we have a problem with our Security of Information Act. We have a provision on anti-leakage, which is screamingly unconstitutional, hasn't been amended since 1939, which is totally useless. It sits there on the books, uh, and with the passage of time, you kind of wonder, well, are people going to start picking up this truly unworkable law and trying to use it? Well, you know, like there's a lot of cleanup that has to be done, but there's no one out there who's doing sort of a law reform audit of this space, and various departments may advance different aspects of this, but not having that overarching understanding of what's really at issue and what should be prioritized, I think is a real disadvantage for us in national security. And so my third thing would really be to invest in an independent reviewer of national security law who would perform mm -hmm. that function, whether as a subset of the NZCOP or a subset of the NZIRA or as a separate body, I don't think it really matters so long as there's this regular auditing of where we are in national security law. Uh, and, and you know, put a pin in this. This needs to be resolved. So it's not just a cacophony of different recommendations from different review uh, body reports. But then what would our podcast do, Craig? <laughs> That's right. Well, we could invite the independent reviewer to our podcast. There we go, right. <laughs> All right, to end this podcast, why don't we just go around the table once more and just say briefly what it is that, what kind of projects are we working on in this space, national security space, for the next couple of, of months? Uh, Michael, what are you working on? Uh, well, two things. The first is we're all here t together to talk about the Toronto 18, and so we are hoping to, I'm co-editing a book where all of you will be contributing, and uh, with Kent Roach and a sociologist from the University of New Brunswick, uh, David Hoffman, and it'll be a interdisciplinary book that includes practitioners, academics, and a variety of perspectives looking at the Toronto 18 trials in general. And then I'll be looking at the intersections between hate speech, uh, hate crimes, and terrorism crimes over the remainder of the summer. Leah. So uh, we have that book we need to finish, Craig. <laughs> Second edition, National yeah. Security Law. Uh, that, um, and I'm doing my PhD dissertation right now, and I'm actually looking at the application of the Charter of Rights in cyberspace. So that's kind of a longer term project. Another project that Jessa and I have, along with Amar Amersingham, that we um, are waiting to hear about um, grant funding, will actually look at the role of um, gender roles in extremist movements and how security forces apply tools and invest investigative tools, uh, prosecutorial tools, and whatnot to women pr primarily in um, extremist movements and, and terrorist movements. Um, we have a hypothesis that the, the narratives of the ISIS bride, the, you know, the victims and dupes, the, the jump in your Jess if you want to, um, that, that are women who uh, fall into these organizations um, has actually permeated um, um, how our security forces assess the threat that the um, women who adopt various roles, um, largely different than men, but sometimes uh, not, as we saw in the um, attacks in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and it's actually putting our Canadians at risk. Um, and I'll, I'll just say really quickly that we don't necessarily think that women are always just dealt with a light touch, but sometimes the men have the book thrown at them, and we actually need to be applying these tools in a way that addresses 
the, uh, the level of threat and risk that these individuals pose rather than dealing with uh, these narratives that we have out in the ether. Can I, can I just add to that? Aside from all of that, you're also going to be starting up a job with me at the Norm Patterson School of International Affairs. Yes. And uh, we're very happy that you'll be joining us. I'm very excited. And you will soon be a co-host of Intrepid Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Jess. Yeah, so in addition to waiting to find out about that funding with Leah and Amar, um, obviously working on a chapter for the Toronto 18 book with Michael on uh, the financing of the Toronto 18 plot, which I think has turned out to be a much more interesting proposition than we originally talked about. Yeah, no spoilers on that, but when we first talked about it, I, you know, Michael asked me to write this chapter and I said, you know, I'm sure there's financing, there's financing in every plot, but it's actually become much more interesting and more in-depth than I would ever have thought in terms of the scope and scale of the, of the money involved. Um, so definitely finishing that up. I've got another couple of chapters and other books that I'm working on. But the big news is that I have agreed on a publisher for my next book on terrace financing. So hopefully that'll be wrapping up over the course of the summer and getting that out the door. Great. Yay. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you. It's good news all around. Stephanie? Oh, podcasting, Craig. Podcasting. And Just of course, podcasting. our blog, right? We're all responsible for yes. keeping that blog going. Yeah, right. So yeah, if you haven't checked it out yet, a, uh, a podcast called intrepid.com now has a blog. It's a blog called Intrepid because we're, we're clever that way. Right. Intrepidpodcast.com. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, so there's a number of things. Really, it's kind of two books. I'm also happy to announce I have a book contract with University of Toronto Press for uh, a book on national security in Canada, um, which hopefully will come out uh, sometime early next year. And the other book I'm working on is with Tamajino, who's also a member of our little kind of uh, editorial board that we've created for the, the blog, um, where we have a project that's looking at how intelligence supports policymaking in Canada. And we've done now over 70 interviews in Canada and the United States uh, to support our project. And it's been really fascinating. So this summer, we're writing it up with a view of having it um, a draft done by uh, December. Great, and uh, I, I, a couple articles that I'm working on in this space, fishing off the book and National Security Law with Leah, some other projects in other subject matter areas. But the other thing, too, you and I, Stephanie, are going off to Israel on an academic exchange mission to learn a little bit about the legal aspects of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issues. Right. Uh, and so that is actually one reason why this podcast will be in abeyance for a little bit of time in May, although maybe we'll have a chance to do a field podcast. Yeah, that's the hope, right? Um, so let me bring our podcasting equipment in the country. <laughs> it's like a whole other issue, but yeah, so that should be, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be, I've, uh, I've really only been to Turkey, so uh, it'll be an interesting trip uh, for both of us, I think. Yeah, and looking, looking forward to learning a lot more about that complicated issue. So uh, I think that's it for today. Thanks very much, everyone, for convening. It's quite early in the morning here in Toronto. Uh, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you about the, the blog going forward, and I look forward to recording more podcasts for our listeners. So thanks very much, listeners, and we'll talk to you again in June. See you next time. Bye.